Welcome to the Intuitive Edge. I'm Victoria Lynn Weston, your host. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an intuitive business consultant, and the founder and CEO of Studio Carlton. We are a group of visionaries, producers, and developers of custom Amazon Alexa skills. I love thinking big, and I love to embrace innovative technology. But more importantly, I love to help companies and professionals engage their audiences on Amazon Alexa. The future is here with voice. It's time to move past your basic website. Did you know that there's over 67 million homes with smart speakers? Check out some of our work on Studio Carlton. If you're looking for a little clarity on information that is gleaned beyond the five senses, you're going to love my guest, Dr. Helene Waba. And she's going to talk to us about her book. It's called The Science of Channeling. And channeling is not exactly what you think it is or might have thought it was 20 years ago. Dr. Helene Waba is the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. She has completed her undergraduate degree at the University of California, Berkeley in anthropology and pre-medicine. She obtained her clinical doctorate at the National University of Natural Medicine. She obtained her Master of Clinical Research from Oregon Health and Science University, where she's been on the Faculty Department of Neurology since 2006. Dr. Waba is the author of some 90-plus peer-reviewed publications, and her new book, The Science of Channeling, Why You Should Trust Your Intuition and the Force That Connects Us All. Is brimming with cutting-edge science. The book draws together much of her research on the subject. The science of channeling is written in true noetic fashion as it seeks to unite the science with practical application. Let's go connect with Dr. Helena and find out all about the science of channeling. If I might ask first, because a lot of people don't really know what channeling is. And in fact, until I got the uh, your press person and your book, I haven't heard anybody mention anything about channeling. So why don't you tell me first, what is channeling? So the way I describe channeling might be a little different from how others do it. I, I define it as a really broad umbrella term which is the process of revealing information and energy, not limited by our conventional notions of time and space, and that it can appear receptive and also expressive. And so that's a big definition, right? What does that mean exactly? So channeling experiences are quite varied. They show up on a spec intuition or gut hunches, I'm sure many of your listeners have experienced that. Probably all humans at some point have had some intuitive hunch that came true. On the other side of the spectrum, we have things like mediumship or trance channeling, and then everything in between from precognition, which is sensing the future. People do that in their waking or also in dreams, mind-to-mind communication, the experience of just knowing things that you couldn't possibly know otherwise, um, things like that. So the premise that we have at the Institute of Noetic Sciences is that everybody is born with this 
innate capacity to channel in some way, but that the way it shows up for them is unique. So it's kind of like a fingerprint. They have their own channeling fingerprint, if you will, that we call the noetic signature. Well, it's so interesting that's- that you describe channeling and having that part of precognition. And I never would have thought that myself having psychic abilities since childhood, and I, to this day, I still consult with clients on, on a business level using my, what, we, what I call today more of the intuitive side. But I never would have thought of precognition as, a, as an element to channeling. Because I look at channeling being, you know, remember Jane Roberts who used to channel Seth? Yes. Okay, so I look at channeling for me. I look at people that sort of get in a, a meditative state and channel uh, an entity in a way. And you're basically saying it's it's much more common practice than it perhaps even more mainstream. Yeah, so I'm using this broad umbrella definition that really encompasses all of it. What you described with Jane Roberts um, has been called trance channeling. It's also been called a type of mediumship. And so those two would fit under my umbrella definition of channeling. I really sat with that term when I was writing my book about channeling. And if I should stick to using that term, using my own intuition and also connecting with the publisher and the decision was made that, yes, using the term channeling still works. If you think about a channel, it's really about you know, something moving through another thing. And our bodies, our consciousness are these incredibly magnificent things that can actually receive and access this information and energy. And that shows up in such a diverse plethora of ways, like precognition, like you mentioned, or the trance channeling, like you mentioned Jane Roberts might do. So besides precognition, how else does it show up for you? Uh, well, clairvoyance, I guess, might be. I don't know if that's channeling. I'm trying to think, because I, I know what you're, how, what you're describing, and I'm trying to think of moments myself where I have been, well, I would have said sort of out there, like in the zone, which would have been, which is rather frequently, I guess, when I'm talking to clients and that you just sort of get into, into that moment where you're focused on them trying to pick up different impressions and things of that nature. Yeah, so you mentioned clairvoyance. That's basically um, literally means clear seeing. And that can show up um, in different ways for people where they can actually see colors or um, auras around people. Or it can also show up as a mental impression in their mind. Another term used for clairvoyance is remote viewing. And nowadays, there's you know, structured programs teaching people how to remote view. There's very controlled, structured protocols for how to remote view and and do it well. And people can actually gain impressions from sites halfway around the world. Um, You know, historically, there was the Stargate program. That's right. I was going to mention that. Joseph McMonagall, right. Exactly. You know, that was almost a 20-year, most highly funded remote viewing program by the U.S. military. And, you know, uh, Ed May and uh, Sonali Marwa have put out these volumes going very in-depth into that research. And, you know, the lab studies of remote viewing, 
um, various studies of remote viewing have shown uh, very significant clear effects that people can actually see things outside of time and, and distance. It's quite incredible. You talk about Joseph McMonigo and, and the Stargate uh, program they had. You know, he actually was awarded the Legion of Merit Award, which is uh, a very significant award for his information, his remote viewing information on, I believe it was a Russian submarine that was headed towards the uh, United States. What really motivated me personally was that every time I spoke about the channeling research program, people would approach me, whether it was through email or in person and say, you know, this experience happened to me. I had this channeling experience and I can't share it with anybody. I'm afraid to share. And I really wanted to get the word out about how common these experiences are, the science behind it. There's been, you know, over 150 years of formal research done on these phenomenon and many of the phenomenon have been tested in the lab and meta-analyses done showing that they are objectively observe, observable and that we can um, see them, modulate them, and experience them in a scientific, rigorous way. So I really wanted to get the word out about that in a very accessible way for the general public. Very good. So what you've taken is, is something that's rather mysterious channeling in general and tried to make it more mainstream because you said like a minute ago that channeling actually happens more frequently in that and that you described some of your own experiences of, of having sort of what I would call the intuitive confirmations or maybe even a clairvoyant confirmation if you had a vision and that type of thing. So channeling is, is not quite as intense as the Jane Roberts who channeled uh, Seth, and as you described, was a trance channeler in that. So you went on this quest. You got this inspiration, and you put this, what I think is a wonderful book together, and we're, and we're talking about that. And you alluded to this a second ago. So you talk about channeling, and then it's kind of like people that have had those experiences, they probably ask themselves this, is this a gift or a mental health issue? And what would you say to them? Exactly. So for the most part, what we've learned through research is that um, channeling experiences are part of a healthy, normal human life, that it does not reduce daily functioning, people report positive impact from it, and that it in fact increases their quality of life. So in general, when we look at people who have channeling experiences compared to people who don't, they score a little bit higher on um, mental health symptoms like dissociation and psychotic scores, but they don't score high enough where a mental health professional would be concerned about them. Like it doesn't reach a clinical cutoff score. And so generally speaking, um, experiencing channeling phenomenon does not mean that you have a mental health issue. That being said, I just want to put out there that there are rarely people who do have problems from channeling experiences. And this is if they have them all the time, if they're really intense, if they're, you know, blocking them from functioning in their daily life and they're having negative 
um, repercussions from them. So that happens, does happen rarely. And if it does, I, I invite people to reach out to get um, support from either a mental health professional or um, spiritual advisor or both. Well, it can be kind of scary for an individual that all of a sudden, maybe they're 20, maybe they're 30, maybe they're 50, and out of the blue, they have this experience. Uh, maybe it's a clairvoyant experience, and maybe it's a precognitive experience at the same time, and then all of a sudden the event, you know, happens, you know, a week later and that, and then they're afraid to share that with anybody because they think they're, you know, that they're off balance and that. Um, so I guess the, the other question would be, how do you tell people that, that are beginning to have such experiences to look at them as a gift and not so much as a mental health issue? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's the major motivation and um, purpose, I think, for my book is for people to have a much broader context for their experience. So instead of being in isolation, oh, I had this dream I saw that, you know, here's a great story that we had from one of our studies. A woman had a dream that her bike was stolen and she woke up in the morning and went and checked on her bike and her bike was gone. It had been stolen. So that would be called a precognitive dream. So without context, that could be feel really scary to have that information show up for you in that way. But with the context that I share about in my book, that these experiences are incredibly common to describe the different types of experiences that people have, that we have formal research about many of these experiences, especially the precognitive ones, and um, to really give people a container with which their experience could fit. And my hope is that when we do that, it allows people to be able to talk about it more openly, to come out of the channeling closet, as I joke about, um, and normalize these experiences for people so they don't have to be in fear or hiding about it and to get more support. And, you know, also, once the taboo energy dissipates, then people get really excited and they say, wow, how can this actually help me? How can I nurture this? Can I use it to support me in my daily life? Can I use it to support my decisions and and how I want to live a more fulfilled and happier life? It's not as as, uh, terrifying today as it might have been 20, 30, 40 years ago that people have these experiences and that and should be more joyous about it and embrace them and perhaps develop them and figure out how to use that intuitive insight, as I would call it, as an adjunct to their own fact and logic to see where that can propel and compel them in this life. I completely agree with that. And you have written this fabulous book on channeling that's going to tell us how to exactly do that. So is channeled material true? And I guess I would want to know is what is channeled material? So this would be any information that someone would receive during channeling. Like, for example, that precognitive dream. That person received very specific information, and she was be able to test. She was able to test if it was actually true or not. Went downstairs, checked on the bike. Bike was actually stolen, right? So 
there have been a number of laboratory studies evaluating if the information that we receive during channeling is verifiable. For example, um, mediumship usually refers to um, this process of connecting with supposed deceased people, so people who have passed. So mediums believe that they're actually connecting with the personality of that person and receiving information about them. So there have been a number of different mediumship studies where the mediums will receive information, and this is done in, you know, triple blind rigorous protocols, and then we check the information to see if what they're receiving actually matches up. And many of these studies show that they they do, that mediums, whether it's connecting directly to the deceased person or some sort of telepathic ability, are able to gain information that they wouldn't normally know about people who have passed. So, the remote viewing is another area where we can verify. So let's say a remote viewer is, you know, accessing a specific site that their manager is asking them to. We can then go check if what they receive is actually accurate. So except, can... except when remote viewing is is precognitive in a predictive mode, then there's no way to really to really confirm that until until the event happens. Exactly. So each type of channeling, you know, takes different methods to be able to verify if the information being received is true or not. So that chapter that you referenced goes to the different characteristic uh, channeling types and what we know about how verifiable they are. So people do that. So they can go and they can... I guess I'm trying to think of a, of a layman that would have an experience, clairvoyant, precognitive, just plain old intuitive. And we, we decide today that that is actually a channeling experience because they're channeling energy outside basically the five senses. Is that what mm -hmm. you agree to? And then they go and you have to go find out if it's accurate in that. But a lot of times I think that people have to wait to the event a certain time frame to see if it really unfolds that way. Um, That's right. So it takes a, a bit of a time. So I guess people would have to be patient with that. If they have an experience, maybe jot it down, maybe keep a journal and see how accurate those impressions, those channeling impressions actually end up being. Um, yeah, there was a whole um, uh, series of anecdotes through one of our surveys. So we asked people to share with us over 500 people to share with us their experiences of this. And one major category was this sort of danger um, prevention, if you will. For example, one um, nurse who did house visits with patients wrote that, you know, she was going to her next patient and heard this incredibly clear voice in her mind, don't go there. Um, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something like, don't go there or wait. And she trusted that um, message and didn't go there right away and then went there a little bit later and found out that there had been some criminal activity in the lobby and there were police and um, there was this, you know, sort of intense, dangerous situation when she 
would have been approaching the lobby of this patient's apartment building. We There were so many stories also of people driving cars and car accidents and being at a red light and the light turning green and feeling an overwhelming feeling to not move forward. And then all of a sudden there's this, you know, collision in front of them that they would have been part of. So we get story after story about that type of in the daily life, spontaneous um, channeling that um, acts to basically keep people safe. It's quite fascinating. So how does channeling work? I mean, does it just happen out of the blue? I mean, it does for me. I mean, not that I've ever said that I was channeling until you defined it today in a more modern terms. So I think it's a lot like intuition. There are flashes of insight. You look at somebody, you might get a clairvoyant vision. Maybe you find out it's a precognitive uh, type of experience that you're having. Um, So when when does it work with a layman? I mean, do they get it just out of the blue? Then you have to help them sort of harness that, those impressions? That's a great question. We're not exactly sure how channeling works. It likely may work differently for the different types of channeling. We also know that our bodies are incredibly sensitive and that physiology is affected by various channelings. For example, there's a a very famous lab protocol called Distant Mental Intention of Living Systems, or DMILS. And imagine two people coming to the laboratory. One of them gets seated in one room. The other gets seated in an electromagnetically shielded box, different part of the building. And they're both hooked up to different sensors, like that will collect information about brain waves, heart waves, skin, respiration, etc. And one person is the sender and they see on a monitor in front of them the picture of their partner in the other room. And when the picture comes up, they're asked to send positive intention to that person. And then when the picture goes away, they relax and they repeat this cycle over and over again, sending intention and relaxing. And what we see when we look at the physiology data is that the receiver's body actually changes instantaneously during those intention uh, conditions. And this has been done repeatedly in numerous labs all over the place. So somehow the body is involved and can pick up Um, intention, pick up information that we may not actually be conscious of. So perhaps there's some, you know, mechanism that works within the body that supports us to do this. The other thing we know is that it probably doesn't act as a force. So because, you know, when the person's directing their intention, the changes in the receiver's body happens instantaneously it's not like there were laser beams coming out of the sender's eyes or mind that had to travel through the building to get to the other person it happens beyond this you know our conventional ideas of what time and space are so that 
leads to this notion of our consciousness being non-local, meaning that it's not anchored in space and not anchored in time. It can go beyond that. And that when we imagine that our consciousness is non-local, that it's not actually limited to our physical brain or physical body, then these phenomenon, channeling phenomenon, make much more sense. It's like, okay, well, if my consciousness can, you know, expand or be beyond it, then me having, you know, reading someone's mind or getting a telepathic impression um, seems like it could it could work a lot easier with that model where um, we have non-local consciousness. And there's been so much research done on this concept of non-local consciousness and this idea that we are actually all interconnected in some way. So you do the sender-receiver test, which, again, I haven't heard of much lately. Um, I remember the Ryan Institute when they would do sender-receiver uh, to, to basically test the clairvoyance using Zener cards and that. So how accurate do you find sender-receiver tests today, similar to uh, the J.B. Ryan, Ryan Institute with the, the Zener cards in your case? What we've seen, you know, the Zener cards are, are a, what's called a forced choice test. So imagine that you have five cards face down in front of you and um, you are asked to pick a card that matches. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm going to go back with my description. So imagine that you see. um the five cards in front of you and you're asked to choose which one is going to show up next. So basically clairvoyantly or precognitively knowing which one is going to come up next and you're forced to choose one of those five. So that's a protocol that's been frequently used in the laboratory. There's a couple issues with it. One is that people get bored very quickly and um, there's something called a decline effect. So if they're doing really well right at the beginning, they don't do as well after, you know, 25, 50, 100 trials. Well, it but, is a lot to do that. You know, I have 100 times. I had developed, you know, because my passion is uh, utilizing voice technology. So I had developed a year ago the the uh, Zener card psychic test for Alexa. So you could actually oh. test, use that on on your Amazon Echo device and see the card. And I created this character, Dr. Clairvoyant, who's British. So she has a cute little <laughs> British, British accent. And they do testing on that. But I'll tell you this. Um, the the developer that I worked with on on that, and they, you know, because they're they're mental. I mean, they're really into numbers. And he said it's kind of a numbers game. So he mm-hmm. felt like none of the users, and you may agree or disagree with with, with the numbers, whether or not they're going to get it. He said few people are going are not going to get past. Um, we'll say three or five, three or four series. And when we were doing the testing, I actually had all five, I mean, all five spreads, if you will, correct. It even surprised myself. And, um, and it, it just blew him away. He said, that's almost impossible to do. And right. he said, I can't believe it. But I, it goes back to your channeling technique because 
as a, when you're testing, you know, technology like that, you kind of go into what I describe as the zone. You're sort of out there. So it's in that moment where you're not thinking consciously of what's going on. You're just out there in this, I don't even know how to describe it, but sort of abyss. And you just know what, what the cards are going to be on that. So anyway, I was just curious if they had a lot of success with the sender receiver yes. methods uh, today with your, your channeling. Thank you. I mean, but what... I would think that people would get bored in general. I mean, it's kind of hard sitting there. So when you're doing the test, as you're saying, I'm a channeling and they're trying to send you that, you know, it's tough because I think the person that's receiving it is pressured to produce. And so they have, you know, depending on their ego, just in a healthy sort of way, are they overachievers and really wanting to get the answer right? So they're really going to be sweating bullets, if you will. Or are they, you know, que sera, sera, and not really as, uh, as, as involved in it. So, I mean, what have you found with your, your people on the testing? Right. So, you know, what you just described is that forced choice, right? So people have found that in general, if you have a free choice, if you're able to, like, let's say, describe the picture that's going to show up next on your screen, that people don't get as bored, they're more engaged, and the results are slightly better, even though both are significantly better than chance. One thing you mentioned a moment ago about this zone of tuning in, I mean, one thing that's really clear is that, you know, channeling takes some aspect of an altered state of consciousness. Right. So kind of like shifting into this altered state than our, nor than our normal everyday awareness. And that's very conducive to um, receiving channeled information. Now, the way people engage to get to that point is really quite varied. You know, some people have specific rituals. There's so many different spiritual and other traditions that have protocols that people use. Some people use tools like pendulums and crystals or cards or etc. being in nature, uh, psychedelics. It almost doesn't matter what the tool you use to get yourself um, into that state, but that specific state that you described about getting in the zone or being in this altered state is what's more important. And how would you describe the different channeling states? Like elementary, you know, for the sort of newbies, maybe they're more younger. Although I think younger people tend to be more open to that because they haven't been... Um, I guess, browbeat into left, left brain thinking as much. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because we started off talking about, you know, the broad definition of channeling and then trans channeling with Jane Roberts. You know, people who used to trans channel in the past, they would go completely like they were asleep. And when they would come back, people would say, oh, wow, you've been talking for the last hour. And the channeler would have no memory of that so and that was called full trance but nowadays um, channelers who do that same trance channeling process are actually aware of what's going on and they can observe it so I noticed this in the literature and when we were designing our channeling studies we created this um, question that was on a slider so the question was you know what was your what is your level of consciousness during your channeling from, you know, zero, which is completely 
awake, aware, normal consciousness all the way up to 100, which is I don't remember what's going on at all. And we've done uh, numerous surveys and people who do trance channeling, they're more in the like, you know, 60 on that scale. We also ask people who have mixed channeling experiences, like, you know, many of the different ones that we've been talking about besides trans channeling. And their number to that question is more about 30. So they're more awake, they're more aware, but it's a little bit different than their normal everyday functioning. Very good. So what do channelers have in common? I don't know if I just asked that or, or, or not, but I'm trying to think, is there a common thread? It's like people, we go back to psychic abilities. I mean, are what is the common thread? Are they all different? Are they all entrepreneurs? Or do they all, because I can't imagine being too corporate and, and having the DNA of a corporate structure allowing you that freedom to think freely. Right, right. Yeah, what we know so far is that people who meditate and meditators um, do better on channeling tasks and have more channeling experiences. People who are open to experience on the personality inventory. Also, people who believe, who have a strong paranormal belief, also uh, have more experiences and do better. There's also... So even yeah. the element of passion, excitement, enthusiasm, just eager to know or explore the unknown. That's right. Have more experiences. And, you know, the other thing that's we're exploring through our research is the genetics. So anecdotally, these experiences run in family. I know I had it in my own family. And so we just finished a study where we looked at high-functioning psychics and controls and looked at their DNA and found a really unique difference in their um, non-coding DNA. Wow. So my, I know, my hypothesis is that there is some genetic component that's likely moderated by the environment. And so we're looking forward to doing more research on that so we can understand more about it. We're also partnering with Columbia University on a neuroimaging study so people can submit their, um, you know, structural fMRI results if they've had them in the past to this database and fill out a questionnaire about their channeling experiences to help us understand if there's something in the something in the structure of the brain that actually affects this in any way. Interesting. Here's my favorite question, and I've answered this probably a thousand times over the years. Where does the information come from? I mean, you can boil it down to straight up mental telepathy, which is what the sender and receiver would be to some degree, right? And then you can look at, you know, the uh, radio tower frequency waves sending the information and the receiver gets it and vice versa. So how, what is your definition of where is the information coming from? So, again, the short answer is we're not quite sure, and maybe it depends on the type of channeling that you're doing. When we ask channelers what they think the source is, the most common responses are the person's higher self or collective consciousness. So there's this, you know, feeling that here 
I am sitting here as Helene in this body, and yet I can tap into a larger aspect of me or a larger aspect of humanity that brings me um, information. So, and this is those two pieces, higher self and collective consciousness, was true of people who did mixed channeling and also mediums and trance channelers. So that's quite fascinating. What are buckyballs? I've never heard of that before. Yeah, there. That's kind of a um, you know common term for these molecules that oh, wow. are um, you know not super complex but larger than just one atom. And you've and, actually seen these this this sort of thing in action where you're actually looking at quote buckyballs the molecules that um, are there. I mean, how does that how does that work? I haven't personally seen those lab experiments. I've read the papers that describe them. That's so, fascinating. Yeah, so Dean Radin, our chief scientist, has done work with entangled photons where we have, um, you know, through this device, the photons become entangled and then direct uh, the participants direct their intention on these entangled photons in a variety of different ways. And we actually, this paper is about to be um, published right now that the entanglement strength. So the strength of the entanglement between those two photons was changed when people were directing their intention to it compared to when they weren't. Uh, one other question I want to know about is this is all great information for me. I like it. I've, I've obviously experienced this, you know, type of thinking, if you will, since childhood. But it goes back to what does skeptics say? And, and I'll say the first thing. I know we can never convince a skeptic. This is never going to happen. But how do you deal with a skeptic and their approach to all of this? Um, the short answer is I kind of ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> the hardcore skeptics who are so entrenched in their worldview that doesn't allow for them, for these phenomenon, I kind of don't waste my time and energy on them because um, no matter how much evidence I show them, they're likely not going to change their mind. The exactly. people who I really like working with are are not, you know – diehard skeptics that'll never change, but people who are critical and, but also open and curious. Those are the people I really love engaging with because often they just don't know about the science that's out there about it. And once you start sharing with them all the work that's been done and the strength of the evidence, if they, they're critical but open and curious, then you can really get into a wonderful dialogue about um, how this works, what does it mean, what there's so much we have to learn, what are some of the research questions that we keep going with. The other thing I want to share about this topic is, you know, most often I find that the direct experience of these phenomenon is what shifts people the most. So I can talk till I'm blue in the face about all the research studies that have been done about it. But if someone hasn't had kind of a tangible sense of this on some level, even if it's an intuitive hunch that came through, um, they have a harder time taking the information in. And then often if they do have an experience, they might 
come to us and say, I had this experience, what's going on? And then that's where we can give them the context like I do in my book to support them in their exploration of it. Very good. So let me ask you this. So here you are, you've done all this research and obviously you're very enveloped in this type of research for a lot of years. How do you feel as an individual? I mean, what is, is this your legacy or how do you want this to expand? I mean, what's the big picture for you and teaching people how common channeling is? I'm really excited to support people to um, not be in fear around these phenomenon and to support people to be able to talk about their experiences and to continue the research for us to be able to understand it. But even more important than that, I'm very excited for people to learn how to tap into their own channeling capacities to be able to support them in their daily lives. Last question here is, you talk about the noetic signature. First, what is that? The noetic signature is what I was alluding to about each person's individual expression of channeling. So for me, I might get goosebumps. I might get images. You, Victoria, you might have precognitive um, impressions or you might see things. The next person might have a different presentation. So we're calling that the noetic signature. It could be like a noetic Myers-Briggs, if you will. Sure. And we've developed an inventory that allows people to discover what their noetic signature is and are building curriculum to support people to be able to uh, nurture and explore it. So how does one go about finding that? I know you alluded to going on the the website, Noetic. Is it NoeticSciences.org or just Noetic.org? It's Noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. We just finished the research studies on the inventory where people could take it and get a report through our research study. And right now we're building the website that will be public facing so that people can take the inventory and get their report. So I would invite listeners to get on our email list so that when that public facing website is ready, we can, um, they can learn about it and engage that way. Very good. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm definitely going to read the book. I definitely want to encourage everybody to go have their own copy of the book. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We learned a lot about channeling and how you, even on an intuitive level, are actually channeling information. And according to Dr. Halani Waba, we're all connected together, basically through channeling and our ESP. If you'd like to further develop your ESP, your intuition and your clairvoyance, I invite you to try one of my favorite Amazon Alexa skills, Are You Psychic? All you have to do is say, Alexa, Open Are You Psychic? And there's a beautiful graphics. You can take the Xena card test that has been updated to a more modern way and, and see how well you do. And you got to practice, practice, practice. But I think you're really going to like it. Are You Psychic? Xena card, Alexa skill. If you haven't already subscribed to the Intuitive Edge podcast, now is a good time to do so. The Intuitive Edge podcast is a series of conversations produced by the Western Media Group team. Copyright, Weston Media Group, LLC.